This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Propaganda, Counterspin, The Young Turks, This Week in Blackness, The David Pakman Show, and Democracy Now! Mad Men is a period piece, but the show has some alarming parallels to the present. In this essay, writer Sarah Jane Stratford explains how Mad Men informs our current politics and how scenes from the show have been a rallying cry for real-life political activists. If you're an active Democrat, you've probably gotten the emails, No More Mad Men. In the past year, the AFL-CIO has used madman references in email subject lines to protest the lack of equal pay, and a senator used madmen as a hook to push for birth control coverage. Even President Obama name-checked the show in his State of the Union address. And you know what a father does, too? It is time to do away with workplace policies that belong in a madman episode. This year, let's all come to- As the fictional characters in Mad Men have become national icons, political organizers have harnessed the show's hypnotic power for real-life issues. The show makes it clear how far women's rights have come since the 1960s, and how much we still need to accomplish. Mad Men has been better than any number of traditional history lessons at immersing us in a world that, though superficially elegant and sexy, is ultimately not desirable for anyone who, you know, believes in equality. From its very first episode in 2007, Mad Men addressed the issue of women's sexuality and reproductive rights. It's 1960 and the birth control pill has recently been approved for general use. On her first day at work, Peggy Olson is sent by office manager Joan Holloway to visit her doctor and prescribe the pill. I'll warn you now, I will take you off this medicine if you abuse it. It's for your own good, really. But the fact is, even in our modern times, easy women don't find husbands. Meanwhile, back in the present, Americans were immersed in the newest incarnation of the war on women. The debates over birth control and abortion heard Republican rhetoric that was eerily echoed by the lives of characters on Mad Men. During Mad Men's sixth season, women in North Carolina dressed up in Mad Men-era costumes to attend a hearing about a state bill that would allow employers and pharmacists to refuse to cover or dispense contraception for so-called moral reasons. Paige Johnson, Vice President of Public Policy for Planned Parenthood Health Systems, delivered the best quote from the event. We love a good vintage look but not when it's running the state legislature. A similar action was just enacted by women in Tennessee, protesting a 48-hour waiting period for women seeking an abortion. Abortion has come up in Mad Men more than once. New York was the first state to legalize the procedure and create abortion on demand, but that was not until 1970, 
the year the show has only just reached. Abortion is usually discussed in coded language, like in this scene from the second season, where Betty Draper tells a friend she's pregnant. Listen to how they discuss abortion without ever saying the word. I'm pregnant. Congratulations. Jessica was an accident. Look how happy I am now. It's not a good time. Is it ever? Look at this world we live in. I can't do it. I can't do it. What am I going to do? What can you do? I don't think you understand. It's not a good time. Are you serious? Yes. There's a doctor in Albany. If you go to Puerto Rico, they do it in a hospital. Of course, you don't want to go down there right now. No. This was the reality for a lot of women prior to Roe v. Wade, when you couldn't always rely on birth control, but needed an option in case of an unwanted pregnancy. When Betty tentatively brings up the possibility of abortion with her doctor, he quickly chides her and assumes she's only worried about losing her figure. An abortion in 1963 could be expensive, dangerous, even fatal. But these were risks many women took when having a baby was simply not an option. The women of Mad Men are not very overtly political. Actress Elizabeth Moss described the politics of her character, Peggy, by saying, She doesn't care about politics unless it relates to her job. She's not going to be a hippie. She's a professional woman. But pragmatic Peggy pays enough attention to what's going on in the world to be able to cite the Equal Pay Act when she tries to advocate for a raise. I just... Well, you know, I'm paid very little. My secretary doesn't respect me because I make $71 more a week than she does. Maybe we need to get you a cheaper secretary. Paul Kinsey does the same work that I do, and not as well sometimes. And I don't know if you read in the paper, but they passed a law where women who do the same work as men will get paid the same thing. Equal pay. It's not a good time. It's not a good time for me, Don. Do you know how expensive this city is? It's not going to happen, Peggy. Not now. I'm fighting for paper clips around here. Last month, the ACLU used this exact scene in a call to action, saying that Peggy is still waiting for equal pay half a century later. None of the female characters on the show have advocated much for political activism, and the actresses who play them are reluctant to describe the characters as feminists. But the show nonetheless paints a stark political reality for viewers by immersing them in the recent past. This clear depiction of women's largely unquestioned second-class status has helped galvanize Mad Men as a political tool. When Senator Patty Murray, along with Senators Barbara Mikulski and Barbara Boxer, introduced the 21st Century Women's Health Act in March, she linked the expansion of birth control coverage to Mad Men. 
In a conference call with reporters, Senator Murray said, As we continue to fight back against those who miss the Mad Men era, the 21st Century Women's Health Act lays out important ways we can and should move forward on women's health. Mad Men should be a cautionary tale to women who insist that they don't need to be feminists and that the battles waged in the 1960s and 70s are now won. But by throwing a light on the past and showing us who we were, Madman asks us to also consider who we are now. We can't feel smug relief about the bad old past when we're sliding right back into it. We can't congratulate ourselves on progress if poor women are still just as stymied by lack of options for reproductive health care as they were 50 years ago. As abortion restriction laws leave some states with only a few functioning abortion clinics, we don't want to be in a position where we hope someone knows a doctor. Mad Men uses entertainment to deliver a stinging history lesson and, ultimately, a warning. However beautiful this world looked, we have to keep up the fight to avoid going back to it. When an anti-abortion group calling itself the Center for Medical Progress released a secretly recorded video purporting to show a representative of Planned Parenthood discussing making money from the sale of fetal tissue, some saw a hardly veiled effort to damage the women's health organization and the broader cause of women's reproductive health and autonomy by blowing smoke suggesting some sort of criminal enterprise. But big media, while editorially supportive of abortion rights along with the majority of the U.S. public, are in election mode. And Republican presidential candidates are making hay with the video. And so what could have been a day's story about an amateur stunt designed to further a well-known argument continues to make headlines. Here to help us see what's going on is Jody Jacobson, Editor-in-Chief at RH Reality Check. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jody Jacobson. Thank you. I'm so glad to be joining you. Well, for some, of course, any opportunity to say that abortion is ghoulish and horrific is a good one. And we've seen a great deal of lingering over details about fetal body parts that's clearly just meant to provoke disgust about abortion per se. But the pretense here, the reason that it's supposedly news, is that this isn't about the fact that abortions happen. It's the supposed uncovering of Planned Parenthood's venality because they're actually making money from abortions. So maybe it's not really women's rights that they care most about. I suppose we're meant to think. So what, for the record, for those who've avoided the story, what does Planned Parenthood do and not do with regard to fetal tissue? Well, first I want to underscore what you just said, which is that, you know, this really is about taking away the access to safe abortion services that we take for granted. What has been done here is to use 
a normal research process and make it seem ghoulish. Planned Parenthood obviously offers abortion. Women go to Planned Parenthood because they're known as a trusted caregiver. Some of those women decide that they want to donate the fetal tissue that results from their abortion to science, and Planned Parenthood facilitates the transfer of that fetal tissue to researchers. By law, they are allowed to recover the cost of storing, shipping, and taking care of the tissue, and that's what they do. There's no profit involved. There's never been any evidence of a profit involved. And what this group has done using altered, falsified videos is to try to imply that somehow Planned Parenthood is engaged in making a profit from fetal tissue. Well, so if the question is, does Planned Parenthood sell fetal body parts, the answer really is no. And there have been, and I've seen media fact checks that that say that, essentially. Even if it sounds like so much sound and fury to some of us, this kind of noise-making and distraction does have a real impact in terms of actual threats on abortion providers and making it more difficult for women for whom access to reproductive health care is already difficult, making it more difficult. So it sounds as though it's kind of, you know, smoke and mirrors, but it can have a real effect in the world. Absolutely has a real effect. I mean, now we're going to spend untold amounts of taxpayer dollars on fake investigations at the federal level into Planned Parenthood. Then we're going to spend untold thousands or millions of dollars at the state level in Texas and Ohio and all these other places, Louisiana, to investigate Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is the most investigated organization probably in the history of the United States with the fewest ever, in fact, no productive investigations. In other words, no investigation has ever found any wrongdoing, and yet the so-called fiscal conservatives continue to spend your, mine, and everybody else's money investigating Planned Parenthood. Well, and if this purported show of concern for human life should lead directly to threats against the lives of doctors, uh, not to mention women, that's really not such a hysterical leap to make. I mean, the original founder of the Center for Medical Progress, the group behind these videos, is Troy Newman. And what might listeners know about Troy Newman? Troy Newman is leader of Operation Rescue. And Operation Rescue has been connected to murders of doctors or has literally directly and indirectly supported the murders of doctors. For example, Cheryl Solinger, who is employee of Operation Rescue and is on the board of the Center for Medical Progress, her phone number was found on the dashboard of the car of the murderer of Dr. Tiller in Kansas. This murderer, murder Dr. Tiller, literally assassinated him in the vestibule of his church. In other cases, Troy Newman has made it clear that he thinks it's a justifiable homicide if you kill a doctor who provides abortion. Well, finally, I know that you can't blame media for everything, but I do feel that as long as reporters feel that they have to report every politician's claims basically credulously, you know, to give weight and attention to 
baseless assertions because they were in fact made by a person right. who's running for office, then there's always a benefit to saying the most inflammatory, Outrageous. distorted thing because even if it's criticized, the, the journalist rule still requires going back to that person to credulously entertain whatever cockamamie thing they say next. You right. know, and, and it's look a, at Donald Trump. That's uh, the sort of ultimate example. Exactly. Well, I know you're at a journalism conference right now. What would you like to see more or less of in terms of media coverage here, or what could journalists be doing to help us cut through this story? Well, I would really like to see journalists stop reporting as basic fact things that are said by these groups without immediately investigating what exactly has happened. I mean, it didn't need to wait several days for Media Matters, for example, to understand that those videos were doctored. Any journalist should have looked at those videos, looked at the complete video before they reported on the short version, and seen that they were doctored. That's good journalism. Reporting false assertions as though they were facts and later on another page inside the paper making a correction is not good journalism. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. A federal court has ruled that a lower court's ruling involving a woman who threatened an abortion doctor cannot stand and that woman should face trial because of the threats that she sent to the abortion provider. Now, the woman in question here is referred to um, as an anti-abortion activist, and she's been very uh, aggressive about her tactics. So she sent a doctor by the name of Dr. Mila Means the following threat. They know where you shop who your friends are, what you drive, where you live, you will be checking under your car every day because maybe today is the day someone places an explosive under it. Now, I should note that Dr. Mila Means was training to be an abortion provider, and after all these threats, she actually decided that she was no longer going to train or offer abortion services in her clinic. So she was definitely intimidated, and these types of threats deterred her from doing something that she felt was the right thing to do in the state of Kansas. Now, after uh, Angel Dillard sent out that threat, uh, of course, a lower court said, well, you know, this is protected speech, so we're not going to do anything about it. However, upon appeal, the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals overturned a lower court summary decision that anti-abortion activist Angel Dillard's letter was constitutionally protected speech. The ruling comes in a civil lawsuit brought against Dillard by the Justice Department under a federal law aimed at protecting access to abortion services. A split three-judge appeals panel said the decision about whether the letter constituted a true threat should be left up to a jury to decide. This woman is despicable, and uh, this is what terrorists do. They try to terrorize you until you change your ways. So in this case, unfortunately, it worked. For four years, they had no... Uh, 
one to provide services in Wichita, Kansas, because they killed a previous provider, Dr. Scott Roeder, and then they rode Milamines out of town, basically, in, in terms of her plans to provide abortions, uh, by threatening to blow her car up, okay? They're terrorists. That's what they are. That's exactly right. I mean, look, it's one thing to send out threats, which isn't constitutionally protected speech. But it's another thing for it to happen in the context of Kansas. Because we get empty threats on a regular basis. But if you're in the context of an abortion provider already being murdered because of what he was doing. In that same exact place. Exactly. Then these types of threats are not to be taken lightly. They're very, very serious. Now, the lawyer for Dillard says the following. It is disturbing that the Department of Justice spent massive resources going after her when both the FBI and the district judge concluded that no evidence exists that her letter was a threat. Okay, when you say you're going to be checking under your car every night because someone's going to put explosives under it, that's a threat. I know where you live, I know where you drive, I know your routine, and you better check your car because I'm uh, because there might be a bomb under it. If that's not a threat, what the hell is a threat? The lawyer continued to say that her client is just a musician, a chaplain, and a homemaker who has always disavowed violence. Really? She's always disavowed violence, except there's some more evidence, including some other threats and some other, you know, advocacy that she's done in favor of violence. With one move, Roeder was able to accomplish what we had not been able to do. So he followed his convictions, and I admire that. She's referring to an individual who killed an abortion provider. Okay, you admire his convictions? Yeah, you are a violent, terrible human being. And if you're going to prance around pretending like you're pro-life, you really need to check yourself. Because pro-life doesn't mean that you only protect the the rights of a zygote or a fetus. Pro-life means that you value human lives, viable human lives. And obviously she doesn't, because if something goes against her own religious belief, she thinks that it's totally okay to advocate for the murder of that person. Could you imagine if a Muslim American said... Oh, hey, military general living in the middle of Kansas, right? Or a lieutenant or anyone, right? You better, I know where you live. I I know where you work. I know everything about you. You better check your car for a bomb under it, okay? And then he said, oh, I went and talked to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in jail. And I really admire him for having the courage of his principles and, and taking action. It would go really well, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. They, they, they'd probably say, oh, that's just free speech. Free speech. Yeah. Protected. No, no, it's okay. No, but he's, imagine that guy's targeting a woman in the middle of, a white woman in the middle of Kansas. Okay. After a white woman had been killed or a person had been killed that did the same exact job as her. Let's say she's a military recruiter, right? Yeah. In that same exact place. You think they're not going to treat that guy as a terrorist? You think we're going to have a discussion about whether that's free speech or not? And then when the lawyer says, no, 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 my client, uh, Muhammad Abdullah, has always disavowed violence when he wasn't talking about, you know, placing bombs under your car. And people are going to say, take that with a straight face and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that might be true. We have two totally different standards in this country. We have standards for, you know, whether it's Muslims or people of color, et cetera. They, and we have a different standard if you're right wing. If you're right wing... You can say anything you like, and we have legitimate discussions as to whether you're threatening people or not. When you're obviously threatening people, and when your friends, literally your friends, she says, Scott Roeder is my friend, I look up to him, just murdered someone. Yes. You're a terrorist, that's what you are. Yes, and what's incredible is that, look, 
some people might argue, well, the Department of Justice is filing this lawsuit against her, so she is suffering the consequences of some of her actions. True, but just understand that in a different context where you're dealing with, let's say, a Muslim for the sake of this example, if a Muslim was saying something like this, they would immediately be placed on a terrorist watch list. They would, I mean, there, there would be no discussion as to whether the or not it's a threat or whether or not it's terrorism. The lower court ruled in her favor. So, oh, that's just free speech. It's amazing. Oh, come on. Really? That court, that same court in the middle of the country is going to rule in favor of Mohammed Abdullah when he says, I got a car under your bomb. I mean, I got a bomb under your car. Oh, I might have a bomb under your car. I know where your car is and you better check it every day. They're going to call that free speech. You, every person watching this video, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, you know they're not going to call that free speech. You know they're going to call that terrorism. She won in the lower court. Insane. Sanger is basically well known for being the mother of birth control. Um, she got her start as a feminist back in the early, at the turn of the ninth, turn of the 20th century. Um, she was jailed multiple times for establishing birth control clinics in various neighborhoods because she was of the mind that women should have the choice to do whatever it is that they want with their body. Shocking by those standards and apparently still shocking today. Um, and in her pursuit of birth control for everyone, she went down a path that I would call not desirable. Mm -hmm. And that path was eugenics. And eugenics is the idea that you can control. I mean, well, there's, there's a difference between positive and negative eugenics. Positive eugenics is more like we want to, we want to, to, we want to eliminate certain populations so that other populations can prosper. And that's the sort of eugenics that you found in Nazi Germany. And then there was negative eugenics where you basically, you didn't, you weren't trying to outright eliminate people, but what you were trying to do is to suppress the reproduction of certain populations. Now, Along with these these attacks by the Center for Medical Progress on Planned Parenthood, you have found a resurgence of these arguments that Margaret Sanger was a racist and a eugenicist, and therefore Planned Parenthood has, had its origins in racism and <laughs> eugenics, and therefore, we why is it that black people support Planned Parenthood? And you get black people saying this stuff. Ben Carson has recently said that Planned Parenthood was, was founded by a woman who wanted to exterminate black people. So why are we giving them taxpayer money? Why are you, black person, supporting Planned Parenthood? Why are you, black woman, going to Planned Parenthood for health care or for abortions or for whatever? They also like to make the claim that 80% of, of, of abortion clinics are in black neighborhoods, so they are targeting black people for extermination. That's what Planned Parenthood is doing. They're not... They're not trying to provide health care services for women. They are carrying out Margaret Sanger's legacy and trying to exterminate black people. Now, Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. That is absolutely true. She was a negative eugenicist, not a positive one. She wasn't in favor of genocide. She was in favor of, of, of suppressing the reproduction of certain people. But the people that she was more concerned with are the people that were called at the time morons, imbeciles, and idiots. And those were actual medical terms that were used 
to talk about a lot of people who were a mentally impaired or b a lot of women who were just promiscuous. There was actually a, a Supreme Court case, Buck v. Bell, in 1927, wherein Virginia had a sterilization law, a mandatory compulsory sterilization law, where they were putting people, putting women in insane asylums, and then sterilizing them. That case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, "Yeah, that's cool. We can do that." Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes actually said, "What does he say? Two generations of imbeciles is enough." Whoa, he actually said that. Yeah, he actually said that. Ooh. So now I'm I'm giving you all of this background. Okay, actually I'm going to give you a little bit more background. Eugenics was really really popular at the turn of the century. It was very very popular. So much so that T- President Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, not not the Franklin guy. Teddy Roosevelt actually gave a State of the Union address in 1903 in which he basically claimed that it was white women's responsibility to continue to give birth. And that willful sterility, the refusal to have children, he said, from the standpoint of the nation, from the standpoint of the human race, is the one sin for which there is no atonement. He was essentially he, along with a lot of white people at the time, were afraid of race suicide. They were afraid that that Anglo-Saxon Americans, that good, upstanding, intelligent, wealthy white Anglo-Saxon Saxon Americans, were being outbred by. Immigrants by black people, by imbeciles, morons, and idiots. Huh. Poor people, criminals, the feeble-minded. Now, this is so. There are a lot of people at the time who were really sort of obsessed with this idea of superior stock versus inferior stock, and meaning they were re- basically referring to human beings the same way that they were refer to cattle. You know, you talk about livestock. They were concerned that white people, the superior stock, were not breeding as As quickly as the people with inferior stock, and so Margaret Sanger was one of those types of eugenics, eugenicists, and and, and, it, and it, it was terrible. I mean, the sort of shit that she said about about disabled people, uh, mentally disabled people, is like the sort of shit that you really. It's just bad, <laughs> you know. I mean, she believed that quote morons should be forcibly forcibly sterilized. She believed huh. that morons quote morons could not be trusted to properly use birth control. Um, she believed that that the feeble-minded and the poor and criminals mm-hmm. should be forcibly sterilized she's, if necessary. She sounds like the mother of the comment section. <laughs> wow, yeah, dude. she had a lot of really abhorrent ideas. But the one idea that she did not hold, and the one idea to which a lot of anti-choicers, uh, uh, a lot of anti-choicers attribute to her, is this idea that black people should be exterminated. She did not believe that, by any stretch of the imagination. She did not believe that. Now, back in about 19, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I want to make sure I get this date right. Um, in the 1930s. She developed the Negro Project, and you've probably heard of the Negro Project. If you actually read up on Margaret Sanger, you definitely know about it. But if you haven't, if this is sort of the first time you've ever really heard about this stuff, you've probably seen a lot of anti-choicers talking about the Negro Project as this sinister, sinister plot by which Margaret Sanger was going to exterminate the black population. But in fact, what the Negro Project was was an effort to bring birth control to black women in the South. And the reason that she was trying to do that is because there were community leaders, black leaders of the community, like W.E.B. Du Bois, Mary McLeod Bethune, Adam Clayton Powell, who worked with her on the Negro Project, but who had, who began working with her 
on the Negro Project because prior to the inception of the Negro Project, there was very little effort by, by leaders in the birth control movement to bring birth control to the South. And there were people in the South who wanted birth control because, as I've said multiple times, black women have always controlled their reproduction because they had to because they were essentially used as brood mares during slavery. So during this, during this Negro project, they, uh, um, Margaret Sanger sort of plotted with this guy named Clarence Gamble. Now Clarence Gamble was the heir at the time to the Procter and Gamble fortune. And so in a series of letters back and forth, they talked about what would be the best way to bring the Negro project to the South. And in defending um, the Negro Project, Margaret Sanger said something which sounds really super racist if you don't know the origins of the quote. That quote is, the mass of Negroes, particularly in the South, still breed carelessly. And you will see that quote plastered all over a lot of these anti-choice abortionist black genocide websites where they're trying to make the claim that Margaret Sanger was super, super hella racist and believed that, quote, the mass of Negroes, particularly in the South, are breeding carelessly. Now, what's interesting about that particular quote is that she she basically stole that quote directly from W.E.B. Du Bois, who's a black dude. Now, can it be argued that she was racist for even using that language? Because as you know, you know, black people can talk about their own community in a way that we do not permit white people to talk about our community. Yes, you can make that argument. But to argue that she was some sort of capital R racist because she took this quote and to ignore the context of the quote, I believe is disingenuous. And that is what a lot of anti-choices have been doing for decades. Um, there is another quote that you will, you will find plastered all over anti-choice websites. That quote is, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. You will see that emblazoned on websites as proof positive that Margaret Sanger's Negro project was the sinister plot to exterminate black people. But they were so sinister that they didn't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. When really, what she was saying is literally, we don't want that word to go out because that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is bring birth control to the South in a way that will make, that will assuage the fears of black birth control opponents, people like Marcus Garvey, who actually believed that the use of birth control in the black community was tantamount to black genocide. So what you have here is, which is, is basically a situation that we always have, which is anti-choicers taking quotes out of context, plastering them all over websites and all over the media, and then trying to make it sound like Margaret Sanger was something that she wasn't. Do I personally believe she was a capital R racist? I'm going to have to go with no. And I'm going to say, and I'm going to say that with the caveat that I am one person and I'm certainly not some, any sort of legal scholar. There are people who are far smarter than I am who have delved into this, this topic. People like Dorothy Roberts and her book, Killing the Black Body, which if you have not read, go to amazon.trib.me and buy Killing the Black Body, especially if you're a black woman. It's a book that will literally change your life. But there are really smart people who have been battling back and forth about what kind of person Margaret Sanger was. She, In a lot of ways, she was a really terrible person. She held a lot of ableist beliefs about people who were, who were physically and mentally disabled. But did she want to exterminate black people? Did she found Planned Parenthood as an effort to exterminate black people? No. No, she didn't. And in fact... I wrote an article that a lot of you have probably read because I've been, you know, been, I've been basically promoting this article for about a month now. Um, but if you, there's a, there's a website that basically has collated all of Margaret Sanger's writings 
And in, 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 in those documents, you'll find it. An interview that she did with a paper called the Chicago Defender in 1945, where she actually ties the oppression of black people in America to discrimination worldwide. So in this interview, she says, quote, discrimination is a worldwide thing. It has to be opposed everywhere. That is why I feel the Negroes, the Negroes plight here is linked with that of the oppressed around the globe. She also said, quote, the big answer, as I see it, is the education of the white man. The white man is the problem. It is the same as with the Nazis. We must change the white attitudes. That is where it lies. In that article, she also describes an encounter that she had with the, quote, anti-Negro white man. She says, quote, when we first started out and when we first started out, an anti-Negro white man offered me $10,000 if I started in Harlem first. She's talking about the Negro project. His idea was simply to cut down the number of Negroes, spread it as far as you can among them, he said. That is, of course, not our idea. I turned him down. But that is an example of how vicious some people can be about this thing. Now, yes, there are people who, who talk a nice anti-racist game, right? but then who really hold super racist views. And there's also, as Jay Smooth has pointed out, the difference between saying racist shit and being racist, right? Margaret Sanger said a lot of racist shit. She held a lot of racist views about black people. But she also held a lot of forward-thinking views about black people and about racism and about discrimination. So all of this is to say she was a very complicated person. She was a very complex person. She was living in a time when America was obsessed with race suicide, was obsessed with immigrants and black people outbreeding white people, was obsessed with, like, just racism generally. And that's the time that she lived. Now, can we falter for that? That's a question you'll have to decide for yourself. I'm not here to try to convince you that Margaret Sanger was some golden child. There are a lot of white feminists who laud Margaret Sanger and have refused stalwartly to reckon with her racism and to reckon with the eugenics and to reckon with her ableism. That's not what I set out to prove when I researched and wrote this article. I just set out to prove one thing, that she did not set out to exterminate black people when she founded Planned Parenthood or when she started the Negro Project, the purpose of which was to bring birth control to black women in the South. Americans actually support providing federal funding for free women's health exams, screenings, and contraception services, uh, which are mostly what Planned Parenthood, mostly the services that Planned Parenthood provides. There's a new Reuters Ipsos poll, and we've been telling you for a while now that it's become very popular amongst the Republican Party and the Republican candidates for president to talk about defunding Planned Parenthood, to demonize Planned Parenthood, to ignore the reality that only 3% of what Planned Parenthood does is abortion services. But it turns out that although abortion itself is still a relatively divided issue in this country, more than 50% of Americans think that abortions should be legal in most cases, it's only a little bit more than half of Americans. When you actually ask about the other services, the predominantly, the predominant services provided by Planned Parenthood, 
These are pretty uncontroversial. And this poll tells us that not only are the services uncontroversial, that using federal funding to provide those services is pretty uncontroversial. The poll found strong support for using federal funds to help Planned Parenthood provide pregnancy tests and other services related to sexual health and women's health, including contraception, etc., STD screening. And this really could be a bad sign for Republican presidential candidates. They need to tread carefully here, Lewis, because when you look at most of what Planned Parenthood does, they are really on the right side, the popular side with most Americans. Government funding for contraception, government funding for STD screenings, these are not controversial things, and Americans support that. Yeah, so the Republicans are asking themselves, uh, how can we uh, more efficiently or, you know, more, I guess more efficiently pull the wool over people's eyes, right? They need to step up the misinformation if they want to combat this. And there's a couple simple ways to do it. One is convince people that a lot of what Planned Parenthood does is abortion. Abortion is the most controversial thing that Planned Parenthood does. Not that it should be, but it is. Convince people that more of what they're doing is abortion. Second option, try to do these uh, embarrassingly failed stings where you uh, publish video deceptively edited to make Planned Parenthood look really bad. Number three, make it an issue of morality, right? That's the other way. And the way that the sort of chain that this goes is they go, okay, well, we'll talk about abortion, but then we'll sort of make it about contraception. And then we'll sort of make it about sexual, uh, uh, mor moral judgments on sexuality, and then wrap it all up together and say Planned Parenthood embodies the organization that is wrong on all of these issues. And sadly, Republicans have done a pretty good job of making this a dividing issue, while it's mostly not controversial. Yeah, because they are just so effective at talking about uh, the horrors of abortion, as they put it. And so it resonates with people. And uh, it has been quite effective. I think on the side of logic and reason, one of the best things we can try to just hammer home time and time again is if you want fewer abortions, you can't simultaneously decrease people's access to birth control and logical sex education. The way to reduce the number of abortions sought is to educate and make available to people birth control and that is going to reduce the number of abortions. David, don't these Republicans realize that if they limit access to birth control and teach abstinence-only sex education, that that will lead to more minorities in the country? Don't well, that, that? you know, there's an argument about that, right? There is this very racist tinge that has uh, uh, surfaced around discussions of contraception and abortion, and it, it's pretty ugly. And you're actually, I know you're sort of bringing it up in a tongue-in-cheek way, but it's a really serious and ugly thing.
In a landmark push to turn back the record tide of anti-choice restrictions, pro-choice lawmakers have introduced a bill to expand insurance coverage of abortion. The Equal Access to Abortion Coverage and Health Insurance, or Each Woman Act, would dismantle the nearly 40-year-old Hyde Amendment, which bans federal funding for abortion except in cases of life endangerment, rape, or incest. The Hyde Amendment cuts off funding for a routine medical procedure sought by one in three women to members of the military and their families, federal employees, women in federal prisons, Peace Corps volunteers, Indian Health Service clients, and Medicaid recipients. Research has shown one in four women on Medicaid who want to end their pregnancies instead give birth when the funding is unavailable. While a minority of states do provide Medicaid coverage for abortion, a number of states have gone beyond the Hyde Amendment, banning abortion coverage on any insurance plan or on plans sold through health care exchanges. Dubbed the third rail of abortion politics by MSNBC's Adin Carmon, taxpayer funding for abortion is an issue even pro-choice Democrats have hesitated to touch. In 2010, President Obama issued an executive order ensuring the ban on federal funds for abortion would stand under his signature health care law. But on Wednesday, Democratic Congress member Barbara Lee of Oakland and her colleagues introduced the Each Woman Act to repeal the ban and prevent political interference in abortion coverage by private insurers. Congress member Lee spoke Wednesday along with other sponsors of the bill, including Congress member Judy Chu of California and Congress member Raul Grijalva of Arizona. Arizona. This is Congress Member Brenda Lawrence of Michigan. Today I stand as a member of Congress, one of the first in our history having 100 women sitting in Congress. This is a time for leadership. Politicians have no business interfering with a woman's private reproductive health decision. The Each Woman Act ends these political bans, whether they're imposed at the state or federal level. Nearly one in seven women of reproductive age is insured through Medicaid. Half of Medicaid enrollees are people of color. Three in ten young women are eligible for Medicaid. We know that this attack on poor women is an attack on all women. By denying federal insurance coverage of abortion, Hyde puts this access out of reach for so many. We cannot sit back and watch the constitutional right of women deteriorate any further. We have been playing defense for far too long, and it's time to change that strategy. This act is, that has been proposed is about reaffirming a woman's rights, period. And it's about bringing up to a level standard the civil rights and the equity that every woman deserves in this country. That was Congress members Grijalva, Chu, Lee, and Lawrence. For more, we go to the Cannon Rotunda in Washington, D.C., where we're joined by the sponsor of the bill, Congress member Barbara Lee, former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, lead sponsor of the Equal Access to Abortion Coverage and Health Insurance Act, known as the Each Woman Act. Congress member Lee, welcome back to Democracy Now! Lay out what this legislation would do. Well, thank you very much. First of all, let me just say, women around the country and men have said enough is enough. And what this legislation basically basically would do is remove the barriers and the bans on funding 
for reproductive health care, all the reproductive health care options with, which women with money have, which includes abortions. And so finally we have, and we, I'm so pleased we had 70 co-sponsors who introduced this bill along with myself to just say basically enough is enough. We want equity. You know, the American people, regardless of their personal views on abortions, they believe that all women, regardless of their income, should be allowed the full range of reproductive options. And so what this bill does is equalize this whole health care issue and really puts low-income women and women of color, you heard half of women on Medicaid are women of color, you know, it, it provides some equity in their whole reproductive health care decisions. And also what it does is take elected officials out of those personal decisions that women must make, which are very grueling oftentimes and very difficult. I want to read from a comment from Representative Henry Hyde, author of the Hyde Amendment. When it was first introduced in 1976, he said, quote, I would certainly like to prevent, if I could legally, anybody having an abortion, a rich woman, a middle class woman, or a poor woman. Unfortunately, the only vehicle available is the Medicaid bill. Uh, so, uh, Representative Lee, could you talk about who was principally impacted by this amendment? Well, this was a direct attack on low-income women, and this was in the 70s, and uh, I was not a member of Congress, of course, but I was working for a great member of Congress who did not support the Hyde Amendment, Congressman Ron Dellums. I was a staffer here, and I remember how horrible those days were in the debates and, and really feeling that uh, this amendment really was attacking low-income women, and that's what it does. It, it really prevents low-income women from having all of the reproductive health choices that women who are not low-income have. And so it basically attacks low-income women, poor women, and uh, women of color who are on Medicaid. And that's got to stop. Congressmember Lee, what happens to women in the military? Same thing. The VA women in the military are denied the full range of reproductive options. This bill would stop that. It would lift that barrier. And how? what are the prospects for this bill moving forward in a Republican House? Well, of course, we have to educate the public, which I believe are, are really there, but we have to let members of Congress know that the public, I think over 80% of the public, really believes, regardless of their personal views, that there should be some equity and that low-income women should be treated fairly. And so we have a, maze, a, a massive educational campaign to conduct. But I tell you one thing, women all around this country, and I'm so proud of all of the young women, the organizations who've been working for years and years and years on this legislation, now we have 72 co-sponsors. Of course, we have a Tea Party-controlled, very conservative Congress. So we are not—we uh, don't have our heads in the sand. We're not looking at the world through rose-colored glasses and believe that this could pass this year. But this is a long-term fight. This was in the 70s when uh, former Henry Hyde, the late Henry Hyde, passed this. And so we're going to begin now. We're going to be very assertive. We're going to educate members of Congress, and sooner or later we'll get this done. And so. This is a marathon, but but it starts. It must start somewhere. So we've taken the very first step. Uh, you know, in the past we've just been on the defense constantly, just defending a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to privacy, the uh, Roe Ro versus Wade. Well, now it's about time we take the offense and say, look, there's got to be some justice and some fairness as it relates to all women.
women. And so this is a major first step, and we have no idea when it could pass, but we have to build that political support. And so interviews like this and educating the public will really help us build that support. Do you think it has something to do with what um, was said when you introduced this yesterday, uh, standing with a number of women and some male Congress members, um, the idea that you've hit 100 women in Congress now? Well, I believe it does. When we have that type of power, of course, we need more women in Congress. But when you have 100 women and when you have women who are at the table writing the rules, when you have women who really understand this from a deeply personal level, you know, I think things change. When you have women who really understand, regardless of their views, once again, on abortion, that elected officials, members of Congress, should not be making those decisions for women. These are very personal, difficult decisions. Let women decide where they want, how they want to live their lives and what their reproductive choices are. And so, yes, I think getting to 100 women in Congress uh, really uh, is a sea change. And again, we have now 72 co-sponsors on this bill, which is really very positive and very good for the movement that is developing. And I just have to give credit, once again, to all of our organizations and our young women around the country who've been working so hard on this for so many years. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, supporting the Equal Access to Abortion Coverage in Health Insurance Act. This legislation, which has the unfortunately trans-exclusionary nickname the Each Woman Act, is the first national legislation to explicitly affirm the right to abortion care. Roe v. Wade may have decriminalized abortion, but the complete lack of anything resembling an affirmative right in the legislature or from the Supreme Court is what has allowed 231 abortion restrictions to pass in just the past four years, not to mention practically perpetual investigations of Planned Parenthood. Coverage bans, the restrictions on whether a patient's insurance provider is allowed to reimburse for abortion care, are the height of every kind of discrimination we rail against on this show. The poor, communities of color, immigrants, people living on reservations, the undocumented, basically all of the people who already have barriers to health care and significant economic disadvantages are hit the hardest. Grassroots organizing led by the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, or URGE, and the National 
National Network of Abortion Funds, along with new polling commissioned by All Above All, showing Americans, by a 24-point margin, think politicians shouldn't be able to deny abortion care to someone just because they're poor, all came together to create a historic press conference this summer. More than 70 members of Congress signed on to co-sponsor the Equal Access to Abortion Coverage and Health Insurance Act, introduced by Representatives Lee, DeGette, and Schakowsky. Many stood in front of cameras to declare that abortion is a right and demanded an end to this dangerous discrimination. Even if this legislation can't get past the GOP's dangerously anti-choice leadership, having a coalition this size put their names on a bill that doesn't shy away from the word abortion is a huge deal, and those members of Congress deserve your support. You can encourage your representatives to sign on through the form at the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health website, latinainstitute.org. If your reps are already supporters, likely All Above All has included them in their all-in social media campaign. So post the graphic at allaboveall.org thanking them to your networks with the inclusive hashtag for each of us. Show favorite Congresswoman Barbara Lee's graphic is up in our feeds if you don't have a congressperson of your own to thank. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If equal access to health care matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Equal Access to Abortion Coverage in Health Insurance Act via social media so that others in your network can show their support too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. We have yet another story of a um, Christian terrorist who walks into an abortion clinic, this time in Kansas, with a bomb. So you've been seeing it 24-7 on Fox News, obviously. Oh, you haven't? Interesting. I mean, this must be all over the rest of the media, right? I mean, when you go on CNN, they're probably talking about this as much as they talked about any uh, Muslim walking into a place with a bomb, right? No? Hmm, interesting. Got to go to Raw Story to find out what's happening. A Kansas abortion clinic was evacuated Monday after a man brought in explosives and knives, CBS News reports. Well, okay, maybe it was just a toy bomb or something like that, so nothing to worry about here. No, uh, according to the local news, it was active and set to go off. So they had to uh, spend a lot of time, obviously, removing the bomb from the premises and deactivating it and making sure it didn't go off, and luckily it didn't, okay? Um, the police captain in Wichita asked about this, and he says, no, the suspect, he was very forthcoming about it. He wasn't trying to hide it. Yep, he had a bomb. A guy walks in with a bomb uh, to kill innocent civilians. What's the word for that? I'm pretty sure that it's called a terrorist, right? Is anybody calling this guy a terrorist? Outside of us, I don't know anybody calling him a terrorist, right? Why isn't he a terrorist? Because the bomb didn't go off? Or because he's not Muslim? What is it? Why, why is he? I don't get it. Why is he not a terrorist? Imagine a Muslim uh, walked in with a bomb into St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. You think that doesn't get covered? You think that you haven't heard about it yet? You think CNN, Fox News is not running that every minute of the day? Come on. You know that's not true. You know it, right? But if Christians want to bomb abortion providers, ho-hum, ho-hum. 
Boys will be boys. Now, this is the same clinic that Dr. Tiller served in. Remember George Tiller? He was assassinated. He was killed by another Christian terrorist. Now, he'd been hit there before. They had shot him earlier, and they came back and executed him many years after that. In fact, the same building was firebombed in 1986, and Tiller was shot and wounded there in 1993, and then assassinated uh, more recently. And Scott Roeder was the guy who did it. Another Christian terrorist, who's almost never called a terrorist, except he went and killed a civilian, shot him and killed him. No, doesn't matter, he's a Christian, so let's all be good, okay? Oh, he's a lone wolf, oh, he's just one guy. Except I hear from my atheist friends all the time that if somebody says their intention, that we should listen to them. If they tell us why they did it, we should listen to them. Well, Scott Roeder, the man who murdered Dr. Tiller, said he was obeying God's law. So if it's Allah's law, he's a terrorist. If it's God's law, ah, come on. What are you going to do? Now, look, understand one more thing that's very important here. These guys are not powerless, right? The Christians in this country are incredibly powerful, right? So sometimes people ask me, hey, why do you talk about Christians uh, more than you talk about Muslim terrorists? Well, first of all, that's not remotely true. You go check out all our YouTube videos. By the nature of the news, I talk about Muslim bombings a hell of a lot more than I do about uh, Christian issues, right? But the reason that we uh, ad uh, address those more aggressively, if you think we do, okay, is because maybe there's something we can do about it. You see, if there's nothing I can do about ISIS in a mountain somewhere, uh, or if I, the best I could do, and I do it all the time, is pressure our government to take the right actions, to be smart, so that we can effectively defeat them, right? There's only so much I can do about Boko Haram. But if they're here and there's something we can do, well, then we uh, apply more pressure, right? But in this case, we have the exact opposite scenario. These guys are powerful. They're a huge chunk of the country, evangelical Christians. Aren't, of course, not all evangelical Christians are radicals like this. Not remotely. Not mo Most Muslims aren't radicals. Most Christians aren't radicals, obviously, right? But there is this subsection. And what do we do? What does our government do? Our government that should be responsive to us, that we criticize to try to get some productive action out of. They, and this is under the Obama administration because he had political pressure put on him. He lowered the number of people working on right-wing terrorism from 25 people to one person at the Department of Homeland Security. The guy who used to run the department was a Republican. He said, what are you doing? We got a lot of right-wing terrorists in this country. Some of them happen to be Christian. But it, you, you shouldn't shut that department down. Why did he shut it down? Because Fox News and Rush Limbaugh uh, criticized them. So now these guys run amok. Uh, this is not the first time this story's happened. I mean, look at how many times they've hit this same clinic in Kansas, let alone all the other different cases where we had uh, Jewish museums attacked, Jewish community center attacked in Kansas. We had, uh, you know, the Sikh temple attacked, attack after attack. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you can't put the, the uh, attacks against the black churches in the Christian category, but you can't put it in the right-wing category. But nobody's investigating. We got only one guy running that uh, shop. Okay, we got a hell of a lot more people looking around. Oh, Muslim terrorists! Muslim terrorists! Should you be looking at Muslim uh, terrorists to make sure you protect our, the citizens? Of course, of course, you should. Should you be looking at Christian terrorists to make sure you protect doctors in this country, nurses in this country, people who are trying to give uh, people uh, health services in this country? Of course, you should. But nobody's minding the shop and not a peep out of the media.
Is there a double standard there? Is there a hypocrisy there? Absolutely. And if you can't see it, you're actively trying not to see it. Ryan from Phoenix here, uh, calling in to respond to your uh, framework of happiness. Uh, I definitely appreciate the concept. I just don't know about the utility of it, uh, so I'm just questioning. Um, I, I don't know if you meant for it to be an all-encompassing solution to uh, dismiss libertarian thought or, or try to correct libertarian framework, but um, I would think that the concept of happiness is tough to measure for people, and how do you justify what makes people happy? And I'm not sure exactly how scientific it is, so that's why I question its utility. Basically, for an example, big guns that blow things up make some people happy. So does that necessarily mean anything different than freedom in that context? Or uh, how do people justify what makes them happy? and doesn't necessarily cause harm to anybody else. And so that would be the same question that I would raise for the framework of freedom, you know. So the guns make, automatic guns make people, some people feel like they have greater, that they're exercising greater freedom, but at what risk to the rest of the population? Uh, same thing could be said for, you know, owning or using large explosions, just having the joy of setting off big bombs or whatever and so does that necessarily a good thing to measure for the goodness the good of society so there has to be some kind of risk reward aspect to uh help counter uh, both freedom and happiness from my perspective i don't know i'll open up uh that to uh, other people's responses as well and see if uh see if there's something that i'm missing thanks for everything you do jay Hi, Jay. Thank you for making the podcast about sex work. I think that was brave. Although, essentially, this is a conversation about labor rights, because it's about sex, it takes gumption to talk about it. Sex work is work. Most people likely enter into it for economic reasons, just like most workers. It's not glorious every day. Some days it's hard, just like any other job. Sometimes it's rewarding just like many other jobs. What makes sex work different from any other job is that right now it's a crime. If a worker gets hurt on the job, there is no one for her or him to turn to. If a customer cheats, steals, or abuses a worker, there is no one to turn to. If a worker is bribed or coerced, there is no one to turn to. That's what happens when you make a job a crime. Over the last few months, you've been asking listeners to call in with stories of what makes them happy. I love this addition you've made to the show. There is plenty to make us angry, despondent, and frustrated listening to your show. And ending with these stories is a great reminder of the power we have in our own life to live the best life possible for ourselves, no matter what world we live in. By taking care of ourselves this way, we are more equipped to take action on those things in the world which we want to change. Being able to do a job which pays you well for your time 
which gives you the freedom to be present for your family and other important areas of your life, and which is rewarding, that's a big factor in happiness. Sex work does that for many Americans. Working in fear and without rights, having to hide what you do from the world, that's a big factor in unhappiness. Criminalizing sex work has this consequence on most sex workers. What makes me happy is to live in constant appreciation. I notice my blessings as much as possible, like having lungs, which actually work, and clean air to breathe. And I thank the world and those around me, letting them know what a difference they make in my life. What makes me happy is seeing others realize that who they are and what they do is noticed as being good, wonderful, and beautiful. So I tell them, and I burst inside with happiness when I see the joy it brings to them to know that they matter and are valued. Every night as I fall asleep, I thank my life for as many blessings as I can until I fall asleep. I usually start with thanks for those things we often take for granted, like, thank you for giving me hands to hold the people I love. Thank you for giving me ears to hear music. Thank you for giving me eyes to see colors. I'm thankful for sex work, and I thank my life for it every day. I became a single mom about six years ago. Supporting my two kids on my own felt impossible until I found sex work. I was able to pay all my bills within the first month of starting sex work. Sex work allowed me to go from losing my life as I knew it to being able to stay in my home with my kids and have a schedule which allowed me to be present for them as they needed me. I didn't end up on the street or welfare. I didn't have to work three jobs and never be home for my kids. Now as a sex worker, I take my kids to school every morning. I'm home when they get home. I make them home-cooked meals with nutritious, wholesome food that I can afford to buy. I can get them to after-school activities and stay home with them when they're sick. Thank you, sex work. You have allowed me to be the mom I want to be for my kids. That said, every day I live in fear. Not of being attacked by a client, but of being arrested and outed by law enforcement or so-called rescuers. I don't need to be protected from my clients any differently than you need to be protected from your listeners, Jay. I just need to have the same rights as any other worker. I need to be able to go to the police for help if needed and not feel afraid of the police. I need to be able to talk about what I do. I need others to accept me rather than shame me. I need to feel safe, not from myself or from my clients, but from the stigma of sex work. I help people. I give them much-needed love, acceptance, and touch. Sex work isn't all about sex. It's also about intimacy. You've asked people what they do to feel happy. Well, there are many people who come to me to feel happy in their lives. They live in relationships not only with no sex, maybe for 20 years, but with no intimacy. They don't get touched. No one tells them they're beautiful, wonderful, and special. No one receives their, jo their touch joyfully. This is about letting people have what they need to feel happy. Sex and connection are among our most fundamental drives. Sex work gives people a place to get their needs for intimacy met while still being the parents and partners they have promised themselves they would be. This makes them happy. By doing sex work, I'm able to give to my community a much needed and valuable service, and I'm able to support my children with my time, basic resources like food, shelter, and safety, and my love 
being able to be present because I'm not stretched trying to make ends meet. Thank you, sex work. Please, world, respect me. Give me the same rights as you have when you go to your job. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for all you do, all the great topics you bring up for us to explore. Keep up the great work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So today, a few more thoughts on the utility of happiness as a philosophy of public policy. This is in response to Ryan, the first voicemail we heard. So thanks to research that's been going on for the last few decades, we actually know a lot more now about what makes people happy and have the ability to measure people's happiness than we really ever had the ability to do before. So the the nuts and bolts of figuring out how to use happiness as a guide is probably less difficult than one might think. And one of the things that we understand really well is people's ability to adapt to some things, but not to others. So again, this is from Happiness, Lessons from a New Science. The author writes, We should try to discover what people cannot adapt to and what they can adapt to. We ought to be specially concerned about those misfortunes to which it is difficult to adapt. For example, persistent mental illness is impossible to adapt to, but most people adapt quite well if taxed to help the mentally ill. And then he goes on about weighing different people's levels of happiness against each other. He says, Until recently, it was pretty artificial to discuss these issues, since there was no way of measuring the changes in happiness in the first place. But this is now beginning to be possible, so the time is ripe for a serious debate on the weights to be given to changes in happiness when people differ in their existing levels of happiness. From these considerations, we conclude that it is more important to reduce suffering than to generate extreme happiness. Another reason for the same conclusion is that we understand better what causes misery than what causes extreme happiness. Oppression is one of the most potent sources of misery. Consequently, the greatest happiness principle would strongly condemn the oppression of any group or individual. So, for me, regarding the utility of using happiness as a guide for policy, you know, the way I see it, having a philosophy of governing is a bit like navigating by the North Star. You know, it is not precise. It can sometimes be obscured by obstacles or clouds, but overall, it is still a useful tool. And whether we're talking about happiness or freedom, it doesn't really matter much because, you know, and Ryan said something along these lines that, Things are going to get messy either way. Uh, The point I was really agreeing with originally is that happiness is just a better guiding light than anything else I can think of, freedom included, for the reasons talked about in the previous episode. Uh, But getting back to libertarianism, another big problem is that pursuing nothing other than freedom always ends up favoring the status quo. You know, whoever has advantages in society at the moment the government you know, decides to adopt libertarianism and stop interfering, well, you know, those people are just going to build on those advantages. The rich and powerful will get more rich and powerful, which, by the way, is actually a really large source of social discontent. But my main point 
is that while libertarianism claims to be even-handed, it is actually benefiting some people over others in structural ways, and we can see that. Like that's It's the writing on the wall. It's not a mystery. So when following a philosophy of happiness, you treat everyone's happiness as equally important, and so you, then you naturally focus your efforts where levels of misery are highest, especially the type of misery that you know a person can't adapt to. So it's almost the opposite of libertarianism. It's you know it, it ends up being very hands-on and very proactive because we understand how this shit works and policies can be put in place that can change levels of happiness. Libertarians tend to think that you know we'd all be perfectly well off if the government did nothing and and you know just went completely hands-off. But I think all of the evidence is pretty much against that. But to take a bit of a step back, this is reminding me of a philosophy of public policy I heard about in a documentary about urban design a while ago. I talked about it on the show uh, at the time, but, you know, it's been a while. Uh, so the mayor of Caracas, Venezuela, was talking about the new bus system that they had just installed in the city. And the buses were very fancy, and the stations looked more like subway stations. They had the raised platforms and everything. And it was all designed to make it look and feel like a very high-quality way to travel, and I was going to encourage people to use it. And along with the fancy buses and the stations, they also had separate lanes on the roads where only the buses could go. There were actually barriers between the bus lanes and the car lanes. And the mayor explained that their philosophy was that 100 people riding on a bus had a right to 100 times more space on the road compared to one person driving in a car. And that is the kind of policy that I think would develop when you focus on the equality of individuals and happiness. You know, being crammed on a bus that's also stuck in traffic is a pretty miserable place to be. And so by using these principles, they focused on alleviating that particular misery by recognizing that 100 people on a bus are worth 100 people in individual cars. And they might even say that, those people on a bus are more valuable because they are not adding to traffic congestion and they're not contributing as much pollution in the air, both of which benefit everyone. So, like I said, a philosophy isn't meant to be a policy prescription, but just a guiding light, you know? Things will sometimes get messy, as they always do, uh, but if we tried to focus on expanding happiness, there is every reason to believe that we would actually head in that direction. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing Past our own sad stories and 
wonder 